I'm Brian Curtis from The Ringer, and this is The Press Box. Picture this, it's Sunday night, you're watching TV, and you look over at Twitter and notice that a bunch of TV critics are watching along with you, almost reviewing the lines as they come out of Jon Snow's mouth. You know, you just go like, oh my god, that episode of Game of Thrones was just, I've never seen anything like that, that's amazing. And then you go online and these other critics are basically sort of saying the same thing, but they're doing such a better job of saying it was amazing. That's Damon Lindelof, one of the creators of the HBO show The Leftovers. In the old arts section, there was one towering figure. That was the movie critic. Everybody wanted to be a movie critic. I wanted to be a movie critic. Being a movie critic meant being a tastemaker. It meant standing right at the center of pop culture. And if you were really good, you might be called a worthy heir to Pauline Kael. I think a lot of the juice that resided in that job now resides with TV critics. TV critics won the last two Pulitzer Prizes for criticism. TV critic Matt Zoller Seitz, who also reviews movies, wrote that he'd never seen anything as innovative as what happened to TV criticism since the mid-aughts. I wanted to know what happened, how this became a destination job, how it became as thrilling to write about TV as it once was the movies. Let's call this episode, TV Critics Are the New Movie Critics. Make no mistake, the old TV beat had amazing writers. John Leonard of New York Magazine, James Wolcott of The Village Voice, and the impossibly suave Clive James of The London Observer. But most culture sections subscribed to the idea advanced by Renata Adler, that TV was not art, but an appliance, and thus the TV critic was kind of a lower species, more of a media critic, or a human version of TV guide, whose job it was to tip you off about a fresh prince the whole family should watch together. Let James Ponawazic, chief TV critic of the New York Times, explain. There was definitely a hierarchy. Movie critics was at one rung and you were, you know, maybe a couple below it, maybe underneath books as well, depending on the publication. I think that TV at the time was recognized as obviously important entertainment, but not necessarily significant art. If TV critics moved up the ladder, here's how it happened. First, TV just got better. If you remember 1990, you remember Murphy Brown and Northern Exposure and 30-something were considered really good shows. 20 years later, we'd have Mad Men and 30 Rock and the BBC's Sherlock. And just as The Godfather and McCabe and Mrs. Miller conferred a certain gravitas onto movie critics of the 1970s, Prestige TV raised the stature of TV critics, too. Here's Slate's Willa Paskin. Television has just ascended a brow. It has become the kind of stuff that people who used to frown on it now want to discuss at dinner parties. And, and critics obviously have like, I mean, we just are riding the coattails of, of that increase in television quality and quantity and people's interest in it. If you had to pick a moment when TV critics began to siphon energy from the shows they were covering, you might pick June 2007, when the HBO series The Sopranos ended. A lot of critics were comparing The Sopranos to high culture. It was a Scorsese movie, a Dickensian novel. No, Emily Nussbaum wrote in New York Magazine, The Sopranos was TV, and great because of that fact, not despite it. It was an amazing sentence, because Nussbaum was not only claiming The Sopranos for TV, she was claiming the mostly uncharted realm of TV criticism for herself and her colleagues. So TV got better, 
but how to write about it in a way that connected with readers. In the early 2000s, Alan Sepinwall, who now writes for HitFix, was covering TV for the Newark Star-Ledger. We had the home field advantage. It was not only was our paper the paper at the end of Tony's driveway, but um, my editor had gone to college with James Gandolfini. He's the one who put the dent in Gandolfini's forehead. Um, you know, David Chase and I grew up in neighboring towns a few decades apart, so there was a lot of sort of linkage there. Um, and I could see already just in the way people were talking about that show in the first year or two that this was sort of all I had ever dreamed about in terms of what TV could be and how excited people could be about it. Back then, TV critics were still operating more or less like movie critics. When a show debuted, they wrote a big piece about it. And then barring JR being shot on Dallas, the critic often dropped the show until next season. Sepinwall realized this gave away a TV critic's advantage, which is that his audience is watching everything at the same time he is. When I would do preseason pieces, they got some reaction, but not a lot. But when I would write a story after an episode had aired, usually after an episode where somebody died... The reaction was through the roof. It was just everyone was writing and calling and saying things. And I realized just how excited people were to talk about the thing that they'd already seen as opposed to sort of guessing whether they were going to agree with me on my review of something that had yet to debut. By the early 2000s, the recap was already in existence. Sepinwall famously recapped NYPD Blue episodes on Usenet during his college days. For The Sopranos, Sepinwall stepped outside his day job and picked up his old hobby again. This is the second moment TV critics make a jump, when they realize television writing ought to be different, because television is different. And then I think especially in writing those Sopranos reviews the last couple seasons of the show, uh, I, f I could tell that what the audience wanted from me more than anything else wasn't so much thumbs up, thumbs down as really, you know, thematic stuff. What did this mean? Not just the dream sequences, but just the imagery in general. Why is this happening? What's going on underneath, you know, Tony's head? And, you know, I realized I could apply that not just to The Sopranos, but to lots of other shows. And obviously, it's easier with something as dense as that or Mad Men, but there's really, you know, you can dig really deep on a lot of these shows, especially the scripted serialized dramas, uh, in a way that I wasn't at first, because I didn't realize that I could. As Sepinwall was writing recaps, the critic James Poniewozik was facing a similar problem. Before he moved to the New York Times, Poniewozik wrote for Time Magazine, where it was even harder to keep pace with TV than it was at the Star-Ledger. One of Poniewozik's editors suggested he write a blog, the first in Time's history. You know, it was like being a farmer who was paid not to grow corn. You know, there'd be a lot more that you could be writing about than you would ever have the space allotted to do. So... Getting to do this blog was kind of like getting to run my own magazine within the magazine. You know, I always say that television, because it's so immediately responsive to an audience and produced on a quicker turnaround than some other art forms, it's very much like a real-time EKG of the sort of concerns and obsessions of the society. It's the perfect artistic medium to write about for somebody who's a, a, a little bit of a dilettante, uh, which I guess I am. The recap was a newish critical form. As the writer Josh Levine noted, it combined traditional criticism, plot recap, what will happen next punditry, and unadulterated fanboyism. 
If there was a line between quote-unquote proper criticism and internet writing that catered directly to the audience, Seppenwall erased it forever. It's, it's easier in a way because you don't really have to do any exposition. You just sort of assume that the people watched it and they know the things. That's why I always refer to them as reviews and re- not recaps because it's I'm, maybe there's a little bit of plot breakdown, but not a lot. And so you can really dive deep into things and not just talk about why this was good and this wasn't good, but what did this mean and what did this suggest and what could be coming next. Movies are great. I have nothing against movies, but a movie is a finite experience, which in terms of talking about, like at a certain point, you're just going to run out of things to say about because there's only the two hours or so, whereas this just keeps going for weeks and weeks and years and years. These days, everybody does recaps. Even the New York Times and New Yorker are recapping Game of Thrones. Ironically, when you talk to critics, they now talk about returning to the older, clunkier form of TV writing, the big preseason piece. The latest transition is I feel like I'm almost going back to the way I started because for a long time, you know, for about 10 years now, the pendulum swung almost entirely to the post-episode review. uh, And that's what people were really coming for. And that's what I was spending most of my time on. And now there's just so much stuff that it's not really realistic to try to keep track of it all that way. And more and more, I'm finding that what people want is they want some level of guidance of, here's a new show, like, is this worth my time? Here's a show that's coming back, I'm not sure if I should be sticking with it, and sort of, it's gone back to the the pre-review as being the greater currency, even though I still do, you know, maybe half a dozen, you know, episodic things a week. So we've got great TV, and a journalistic vehicle nimble enough to honor it. The third thing that lifted TV criticism is the rise of the celebrity showrunner. 20 years ago, you hardly heard the word showrunner, and it certainly didn't mean artist, the way it's used today to honor Vince Gilligan or Shonda Rhimes. And even if we admit TV as a collaborative medium, an inevitable product of the writer's room, picking out some auteurs is a handy thing. It helps critics identify signatures in different shows. It gets feature stories assigned. See Willa Paskin on Catastrophe's Sharon Horgan. Moreover, these showrunners have courted critics in the same way Woody Allen once handed a script to Pauline Kael and asked if she had any edits. Listen to Andy Greenwald, who covered TV for Grantland. When I was covering some shows, I would talk to the showrunner ahead of time about the season that, that we were about to watch. Uh, I would write about the show during the season, sometimes even be in touch with the showrunner where the showrunner would you know, send me a note saying, oh, I was glad you saw that, or I'm sorry you didn't like that. And then having a conversation about what was accomplished at the end of it. And for as much as I enjoy the access and the fan in me really appreciates that perspective, the fan of the show and the fan of the medium in general as a creative enterprise, I do sometimes wonder, and I did wonder while it was going on, if that was affecting my relationship with the show, where I was expecting it to be much more of a results-oriented medium than TV or art really necessarily should be, that there was one thing that someone was trying to accomplish, and it boils down to did he or she accomplish it or not. And I don't, always, I don't know if that's always the best way to process a work of art. A critic like James Ponawazic, on the other hand, doesn't really want to talk to showrunners at all. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like, you know, just like a hitman who, you know, doesn't want to know if you have any kids. <laughs> just, you know, <laughs> send me in and let me do the job and uh, keep it as impersonal as possible. The showrunners I talked to found TV critics to be interesting objects of study themselves. TV critics were publishing so many words that a showrunner came to know them really quickly. In a way, it used to take years in a published volume of reviews to know a critic. Here's The Leftovers' Damon Lindelof. I have never met Emily Nussbaum. 
I, we've had a couple of back and forth on Twitter, but I've never sat in a room with her. But I feel like I know her because I have read tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of words that she's written. And so if there is an intimacy, you know, in my own head that I've created. And there's also part of me that's like, I don't want to ruin that. The insta-criticism of Twitter and recaps offer the showrunner something, too. While his show is on the air, he becomes like a playwright standing in the wings, listening to gasps or laughs from the theater. If an episode of The Leftovers airs and I basically go online and I, and I see how is everybody responding to this episode immediately after it aired, that's the closest I can get to finding out what letter grade I got on my test. That's, there's an insatiable desire for me to know how, how I'm being evaluated, and I wish that I could turn that part of me off, but I can't, and so uh, I've embraced it. The fourth reason the TV critic rose in stature is the world changed. In the swing in 60s and 70s, a TV critic like Clive James or James Wolcott was almost making a philosophical statement by being glued to the set. What changed? Well, our TVs got bigger and sharper. Cable became a golden corral for content. Our laptops became TVs. And the dream of even swinging people everywhere was to stay home. Here's James Ponawazic of the New York Times. Staying in has become the new going out. And yeah, TV critics, <laughs> for the same reason that we used to be looked down upon relatively, we're kind of the staying in critics. So I guess that's our sphere. As the rest of the world has become more more lame and sedentary, they've come to us. I know what Panawazic means. I love movies. I love going to movies. But more and more, I feel the movie critic is telling me about stuff I'd love to see, if only I had the time, whereas the TV critic is telling me what I'm actually going to watch. If the TV critic is on more or less equal footing with the movie critic, it's made our digital art section an interesting place. For example, women are underrepresented in lots of journalism jobs. But there are a lot of women who write about TV. Not only Paskin and Nussbaum, but Variety's Mo Ryan and Sonia Soraya, Vox's Caroline Framke, and The Ringer's Allison Herman. I asked Slate's Willa Paskin if she had a theory. There is something about TV having been this like fluffy, soft medium for a long time that made it easier for women to get into and also like because it was not like the plum spot for so long that it was just like more open and so um, it has become more uh, gender diverse. In 2016, the TV critic works at her craft under an avalanche. As Panawazic noted in the Times, when you count commercials, the premiere of the TV show Fargo was only one minute shorter than the Coen Brothers movie Fargo. And FX CEO John Landgraf, who's been warning the world of oversaturation, pointed out that in 2009 there were 211 original scripted series. Six years later, there were more than 400 if I were to be caught up on all the shows, I should be caught up on and have seen everything of the new shows that I should have seen. Like, even not just to review, but, like, just to be up on them. Like, I should be watching, like, 20 or 25 hours a week. I'm not doing that because that's impossible. This month, The New Yorker's Emily Nussbaum said on Twitter that she'd stopped watching Game of Thrones in season two and was only now just catching up. And when Netflix releases an entire season of a show all at once, it makes life even worse. Andy Greenwald explains. When Netflix dumped the first season of House of Cards, um, I worked my way through it as quickly as possible like everyone else, both because I was interested and because I had a deadline. All of the episodes began to blur together. And of course, you know, they encouraged that by naming them chapter one, chapter eight, chapter nine. 
But there was one episode that in any other type of TV show would have essentially been a bottle episode, meaning it took place in a, in one setting away from, um, the, 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 the week to week tumult of the show. And in this episode, Frank, uh, went back to his alma mater and connected with some other graduates of his college class. And we found out some secrets about his personal life and his past. And I remember watching that thinking, oh, there's a lot to unpack here. This show is actually doing something more interesting than I thought. There's more depth here than I had previously realized. But it was midnight, and I had another episode to get through, so I clicked next, and there was no collective conversation based around that episode. And I think, had there been, it would have improved not just the criticism about the show, but I think it would have improved the conversation and the experience around it, too. So I, I, I do miss that with the, with the dump them all method. If we're going to declare that TV critics are the new movie critics, we probably ought to talk to a movie critic to see what he thinks about this. A.O. Scott writes for the New York Times and is the author of Better Living Through Criticism. Here's what Scott thinks a movie critic still has over a TV critic. There is a kind of diversity in what we can cover and what we can write about. There's a sort of a variety. There's high and there's low, for one thing. Um, and that doesn't quite exist in the same way in television. I mean, yes, there is. You know, there There are foreign TV shows and, you know, public television or, or whatever, but there isn't yet room or a space within television for the kind of um, experimental or avant-garde or very strange and esoteric and highly individual expressions that are part of what a film critic gets to deal with. So it's still, I mean, I, I do think that, and I'm sure there are TV critics who would disagree with it, but but I I do think it is still a much more um, convention bound and in a way a more narrow medium at the moment. Fair enough, right? We don't have avant garde TV unless you count Louie. But I also asked Scott the opposite question: What does a movie critic in 2016 envy about a TV critic? Scott told me he just read a book about Otis Ferguson and the movie critics of the 30s and 40s who are figuring out how one ought to review a film. TV critics are in a similar moment where the art form is establishing itself, you know, as an art form uh, visibly and self-consciously for the first time, which means that critics have to figure out what the proper idiom is. And that means things like not only who the auteur is, let's say, but what the unit of critical attention is. You know, are you are we writing about episodes? Are you writing about seasons? Are you writing about the arc of entire series? Um, are you writing about you know, maybe a sequence of episodes that are written by or directed by the same people? Are you writing about characters? You're also writing about things that that change. You know, are you still writing about the same show when all the writers get fired and replaced or when it's, you know, um, the third or fourth iteration of, of the cast? So uh, what I envy is the fact that you know, that the plaster is still wet and, and, and the critics can kind of stick their hands into it in a way that critics working in more established art forms and in more established critical idioms don't quite have the chance to do. That's perhaps the final reason being a TV critic in 2016 seems so thrilling. If A.O. Scott is the very best movie critic of his age, we might call him a worthy heir to Pauline Kael. If Nussbaum or Ponowazek or Paskin or Sepinwall is the greatest of their age, they might be Pauline Kael, the person who lays down the critical vocabulary. How fitting. A revolution as democratic as the medium itself. TV criticism has been invigorated by women and men, amateurs and pros, on Twitter and in the pages of The New Yorker. As the old Observer critic Clive James once put it, everybody is a television critic. I have never met anybody who wasn't. The only difference is that a few of us write it down. 
That's it for the Press Box. I want to thank my ace producers, Joe Fuentes and Tate Frazier. The Watch's Andy Greenwald served as the unofficial, which is to say unpaid, showrunner of this episode, and the ringer's Allison Herman was nice enough to let me talk to her about covering TV. Thanks to Tate Frazier and Chris Almeida, who provided additional research, and to Jim Cunningham for the additional production assistance. Today's music comes courtesy of Dustin Ragland. We've got more Press Box podcasts in development. In the meantime, listen to all the Ringers podcasts. I'm Brian Curtis. Until next time. Thank you.